Lord as it's read, and then we'll pray and jump in. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lie down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. God, we ask for your help as we think this morning together about the spiritual practice of service, serving one another in love. And as we consider these things, we ask for your spirit to be at work helping us to believe and understand that the gospel is true and beautiful and life-changing, and that because of the gospel, because you have sent Jesus into the world to serve us, even to the point of death on a cross, because that has happened, by faith and through the empowering agency and ministry of the Spirit, we too can go out in the name of Jesus and serve others. So we ask that you would empower us just to do that this morning and throughout our lives. And we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sort of the story that dominated news, at least my news feed in the past week, was that story about the Thai soccer team that got trapped in the caves. I'm guessing that most of you have heard about that story. These 12 boys between the ages of 11 and 16 were, I guess, uh, hiking or doing something in northern Thailand with their coach, and they got trapped in this vast cave network in northern Thailand, and they were trapped there for 12 days, 12 days before anyone found them. And then I'm still not sure how they were found, but they were found... And it took another six or seven days to extract all of the boys and the coach from um, these caves. And people from all over the world came and volunteered their service to help these children. Pro divers and Navy SEALs and Thai Navy SEALs in particular led in the rescue effort. And one story I read this week was that the last four Thai Navy SEALs to rescue the last four boys and the coach sort of escaped just in time. They waited with the coach and the last few boys to get them out and they could watch the water rising in the caves and they sort of dove and escaped sort of a two and a half mile trek to safety just in time as the caves flooded with rainwater. And uh, I actually do think I read that one diver actually died in the efforts to save and rescue these boys. And, you know, I just was fascinated by this story, as I'm sure some of you were too, and I followed it closely. And, you know, as I was thinking about the idea of service this week, it struck me what a great example this story is of the spiritual practice of service. These seals and the divers and all of the helpers were willing to give of themselves, to sacrifice themselves, to benefit and to help others. That is the biblical definition of service. And that's our topic for this morning. As I mentioned, we're continuing in this series that we're calling Spiritual Formation. And the overarching point of this series is basically this, to effectively minister as Jesus followers in a post-Christian age We need thick spiritual practices. 
Christians, in other words, are going to have to become increasingly distinct from the surrounding culture. And the reason for this is that what historians call Christendom is collapsing all around us. The church in the Western world can no longer depend on a large number of people to have significant background and understanding of the Christian story and the Christian worldview and then just sort of easily connect these people into our local churches. That world is vastly and quickly disappearing. Rather, Christians are going to have to adapt the way we think about our relationship with the world. The secular West is going to need to be re-evangelized. And that's only going to happen as Christians like us scatter into the world and live faithfully present countercultural lives. And that is only going to happen as we are spiritually formed into the people that God has called us to be. I was reading an article this week by a man named Alan Kreider, who's a historian, and he's not a Christian, but he has an article in a book I was reading called The Ancient Church and Evangelism. And I read something that I'd never heard before about the ancient church. In the first couple of hundred years of the church's existence in the Roman Empire, Kreider says that early Christians did not engage really at all in any sort of public preaching or evangelism because it was too dangerous. And we don't really know of any early evangelists or missionaries in the first 100 or 150 years of the church when the emperor Nero in the mid-first century began to persecute Christians, the church in the Roman Empire basically went underground. And it even shut itself off from outside visitors. They would have deacons stand at the door sort of serving as bouncers. Now, our deacons don't get any ideas. I don't want you to be a bouncer. Uh, And they would uh, check to see that no unbaptized person, that no person that could inform on them could come into the worship service. So it was a very secretive thing, and yet the church was experiencing explosive, radical growth. It had been officially labeled, Christianity that is, a superstition by the Roman Empire, and powerful people scorned Christianity, and neighbors discriminated against Christians in countless petty ways, and still the church grew, even though it was hard to be a Christian. And the question is, why? Or how? How did the church grow in that kind of setting? And here's Kreider's point. He says that the church's social situation made the church grow because Christians were so radically different. They were radically different from the world around them. And he writes that people were fascinated by Christians and by Christianity, and they were drawn to it as to a magnet. Because of the lives of the Christians in the cities... Those who weren't following Jesus were attracted to the community that they had with one another, to the way they cared about the social needs of the cities in which they lived. And then they became open to talking about the truths of the gospel that were the source, the source of this kind of life. And what I think is true more and more each year is that our culture more and more reflects that kind of culture. We don't have to worship in secret in this country, although many brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do, but we are more and more becoming a cultural minority. And so the purpose of this series is for us to think about what does it mean to live a countercultural life? What does it mean to be formed spiritually in a way that is going to enable us to serve as faithful witnesses of the gospel through word and through deed? Okay, 
So we've talked about hospitality. We've talked about community. We've talked about scripture. Last week, we talked about the disciplines of fasting and moderation. And today we're going to talk about service. Service. Unquestionably, one of the ways that Christ followers live magnetic countercultural lives is by serving. And so here's how I want to summarize the main idea for you today. Serving others in love is a primary way that we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to a post-Christian world. That's the big picture point. Serving others in love is the primary way we demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to a post-Christian world. And as we look at this 1 John 3 passage, you can divide it up into two parts. First, God shows love in sacrificial service for us. And then second, we show love in sacrificial service to others. So first, God shows love and sacrificial service for us. Sam read for us from 1 John 3.16, which says, By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. So what is the definition of love according to the scriptures? The definition of love according to the scriptures is to sacrifice yourself for the good of someone else. And the Bible repeatedly emphasizes that the love of God is primarily demonstrated in the death of Jesus Christ. In fact, the New Testament especially hardly ever mentions the love of God without connecting it to the cross. Let me just give you a few examples. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible most likely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and demonstrated his love by giving himself for me. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So you see the common thread in all of these verses is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the measure of God's love. The cross of Jesus Christ is the measure of God's love and it's the primary means by which we become aware of the love of God for us. So the love of God is made known through the service, the sacrificial service of Jesus for us. Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus served us even unto death. Jesus gave himself up for our benefit. Jesus suffered so that we can thrive. That's why the gospel is not just news, it's good news. Jesus willingly offers himself as an atoning sacrifice for people who don't deserve it like you and like me. That's the very heart of our faith. And this good news really is always worth a little bit more of our time and reflection. Our main core value at Christ Church is that the gospel, this message, changes everything. And so I want to take just a couple of minutes and think about that a little bit more with you because until you get that drilled deep into your spiritual selves you can't really understand the importance of service. The gospel becomes even, even more pronounced in its beauty when you understand who Jesus is and when you understand who you are. First of all, who is Jesus? Jesus is the king. 
Jesus is the Lord of the universe. All things, the scriptures tell us, were made for Jesus and by Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. So the story of the scripture is that Jesus formed and fashioned each one of us in his image. He made us to be friends with him so that we might enjoy communion and fellowship with him. Jesus deeply loves this world that he has made. And he calls his people to submit to his rule. And in submitting to his kingship, to his rule, all people will enjoy a life of flourishing. Because God is infinitely good. He is infinitely glorious. He is worthy of all of our honor and devotion. He is pure and precious and great and gracious. That is the one true living God. He has made himself known to us in Jesus the king of the world and the savior of the universe. So that's who Jesus is. And then think about who we are. Despite Jesus being who he is, the scriptures tell us repeatedly that all of us, all humans, men, women, and children have turned away. We have turned away from Jesus and we have spurned his love. We rebel against him. It's a condition of our hearts, the basic setting The default setting, the mode of operation that all of us are born into is one of rebellion. It's one of enmity with God. Despite the fact that God loves us, that God made us, that God wants to be friends with us, we ignore him, we disobey him, we treat him as if he did not exist. We're full of all of these things, and that's what the Bible calls sin. We're unrighteous. And the story tells us that our sin is what put Jesus on the cross. We are rebels and enemies of his. This is completely our own doing. We are guilty and we deserve to be renounced by him and separated from him. And yet he loves us. He loves rebels. He pursues sinners. His love is greater than our sin. That's what this verse and so many other parts of the scriptures tell us. Despite our rebellion, despite our turning away from God, his heart is open towards us. So much so that he entered into our dark world and he died in the person of Jesus so that we can live. I read Romans 5, 8 a minute ago, but Paul tells us a little bit more in Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. He says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love in that while we were still sinners, while we were hostile to him, while we were separated from him because of our condition of rebellion against God, while we were there, Jesus died for us. The great British theologian John Stott summarizes it well. Listen to what he writes. The more the gift costs the giver and the less the recipient deserves it, the greater the love is seen to be. Measured by these standards, God's love in Christ is absolutely unique. So the point is that God demonstrates his love and tells us what love is by sending Jesus to serve us even to the point of dying on a cross, not for his friends, but for people who can't stand the sight of him. Recently in the news, there was another story, um, probably more terrifying than being trapped in a cave like those Thai boys were. It's a story about uh, this doctor named Larry Nasser. 
who was a physician at Michigan State University for a number of decades and also the lead physician of the U.S. women's gymnastics team. And it came out over a number of years that probably literally hundreds of young gymnasts over a period of decades had accused Dr. Nasser of abuse. And eventually, I guess, enough evidence was mounted that he was actually indicted and put on trial. And, and the trial was followed very closely by the media. And the first lady to accuse Dr. Nasser was a lady named Rachel Den Hollander. And Rachel Den Hollander made a statement in court at the trial of Dr. Nasser as he was about to be convicted. Some of you might have read a little bit of her statement. It turns out that she is a follower of Jesus. And I want to read to you a little bit of the statement she makes because it struck me as moving and profound and also as a great example of the kind of love that God shows sinners. Listen to what she writes in the middle of a court. This is her statement in the middle of a courtroom towards the man who many years earlier had abused her. She says, you have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires, a man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially, no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you have spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, too, I choose to love this way. The Bible you carry speaks of a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. That's a powerful thing. And really, only someone who has rested and delighted in the forgiving love of God for sinners in Jesus through Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross can ever say that to someone who has done as vile and as wicked of things as Dr. Nasser had done. And only when we begin to grasp that that is the depth and extent of God's love can we really begin to serve and lay down our lives sacrificially for others. You see, the gospel magnifies the great, great love of God. The gospel is that God is love and that he sent Jesus to forgive our sins. The gospel is that God has become a servant in Christ and that we benefit eternally from his free and gracious service to us. That's John's point. God shows his love in service to us. And so if that's true, and if we really believe that, John tells us next that it will show itself in our lives by sacrificial service to others. We will follow the pattern on a greatly reduced scale that Jesus set for us in his death. So the first point is that 
God shows love and sacrificial service for us through Jesus. And then John tells us, secondly, that we show love and sacrificial service for others. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And then he says, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He continues in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So John says, the person who has believed and rested in the gospel of Jesus' service for us understands the importance of meeting practical, real needs around him. And if that is not done, if we, as John says, close our hearts against the needy, how can we say that we believe that God's love is really in us? Again, notice the practical bent there in verse 18. Don't love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And more importantly, I want to look at how the motivation for loving service towards others is grounded there in the gospel. We see here the ethic of the gospel. True belief in the wonder of the gospel sparks within us true service towards others. If you really are believing the gospel, that's going to change your life over time so that you're really laying down your interests and your desires and your resources so that others will benefit by them and through them. So if that's true, then the converse is also true. When we're not willing to serve or love others sacrificially, really the ultimate reason is that we are not fully believing the gospel that Jesus served us freely. That's true when we don't serve, and that's true when our service is motivated by selfishness and not by love. Isn't often that the case in our lives? I mean, if we're being honest with ourselves, we might do nice things for other people. We might volunteer. We might show kindness, but it has some form of expectation of a return attached to it. That's self-righteous service. And self-righteous service always requires external rewards or recognition. Self-righteous service needs to know that people see and appreciate the effort, right? It seeks human applause, of course, with proper religious modesty and all of our religious trappings. But self-righteous service is highly concerned about results. It eagerly wants to see if the person served is going to reciprocate, And the flesh, you know, the flesh always whines against service, but the flesh really, really screams against hidden service that no one's ever going to know, that no one's ever going to recognize, and that no one's ever going to appreciate. Because our self-righteousness strains and pulls, even through service, for honor and recognition. And we will devise subtle and religiously acceptable means to call attention to the service that we are rendering. True service, however is selfless. True service is an emptying of the self. And because that's true, true service always is going to require an ongoing faith and repentance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. True service requires a constant perception of Jesus as he has offered himself to us. True service is really only possible for us through the empowering ministry and agency of the Holy Spirit in our lives 
And because the Holy Spirit does dwell with us, that kind of service is possible, and it's a beautiful and a sweet thing. It's one of the chief fruits of faith in Jesus. So the question that John is pressing on us, that the Spirit is pressing on me and on you this morning, is is that, is that sort of service evident in your life? Is that sort of service evident in our church community? I want to just wrap up with maybe thinking together about a few practical areas in our lives in which we can serve, in which we can show in deed and in truth that we actually do believe the gospel. It's easy to say, I believe the gospel, sure thing. But what's the key is not what you say. The key is what manifests in your life. If you see needs of your brothers, don't close your heart against him. If you close your heart, how does God's love abide in you? So are we closing our hearts towards the needs that we see around us? If so, then right now the Holy Spirit calls us to turn away from that through repentance and to rest and believe the gospel of Jesus and the Spirit's transformative power is at work. So let's just think practically for a few minutes and then we'll finish up, okay? Three, three areas of life that are all fairly obvious in which we are all, no matter where we are spiritually, no matter where our maturity level is in Christ, called to serve. First, in the family. In the family, families are many, many ministries of service. Families are the area where more than any other, the day-by-day laying down your life for the good of others is going to show itself up. And it's also the place, more than any other, where you're going to need to day-by-day repent (laughs) of your failure to do this and believe the gospel Confess your sins, ask for forgiveness, and be long-suffering towards one another. You know, as parents, um, I'm sure we often worry about the culture in which our children are growing up and how we can train them and encourage them and equip them to live a life as a faithful follower of Jesus in a world that seems to be falling apart all around us. And you know what? There's a lot of things to say about that. I'm sure there's some really like significant and profound answers out there somewhere, but really what's basic is that our children need to see that the gospel really is true via the way we treat each other, via our willingness to give up what we most want so that someone else can benefit. And when we fail to do that, saying we're sorry and seeking the Lord's help for continued growth in that area. You know, the Christian life at the end of the day is very, very basic. Who are the people that God has placed around you most closely, most proximately? Well, those are the people. You don't need some special revelation from God to find out who you're called to serve. It's the person you wake up to every day. And it's your children or it's your parents. Those are the people that God has called you to serve. And that's the main area in our lives where it should be manifest. So service should take place in the family. Secondly, service should take place in the church community. You know, the one of the things I love about church planting is that it, it, and I say this a lot, I feel like, but it literally like takes everyone serving to just do this, <laughs> to have a service, to have a community together. And, and I want to just encourage you to remember that the volunteer aspects of our church life, these aren't just, you know, things that we have to get done. They are practical ways to serve others in the church and to serve guests and primarily to serve Jesus set up and take down, greeting, uh, setting up communion, child care, 
using your gifts or your abilities for the good of the body, all of those things are practical ways to serve sacrificially and lovingly. When you show up early to set up, when you stay late to take down, when one spouse has to get the kids ready by himself or by herself, those are the ways that we're practically demonstrating that we actually believe all these things that we sing about and hear about and teach about, that the gospel is true. So are you serving? In your family, are you serving in your church community? And then thirdly, of course, we serve in our neighborhoods and in our city. And there's so many different things I can say here, but one thing I love that God has done among us here at Christ Church is given so many of us a particular passion and calling for adoption and foster care ministries. I can't think of a better way to serve the needs of the other in the name of Jesus Christ. And God has blessed our people with a hunger and a heart for this that we honor and we are thankful for and we want to continue to see thrive. We have our public Christ Church Serves events. In September, we'll be back at San Antonio Metropolitan Ministries. In October, we're going to be at Children's Hunger Fund. These are formalized ways for us to express our commitment to serving the city in congregational life. But there's countless informal ways in which you can think about how you can serve your neighborhood and your community in the name of Jesus Christ because God in Jesus has served you. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if your service is public or if your service is private. It's all seen by God. It's all seen by God because God knows the hearts. And the way in which our community of faith is going to more and more be effective in reaching people with the truth of Jesus Christ isn't just by talking about it all the time, but by demonstrating it and manifesting it through service. Uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, tells a story that I thought was really helpful. Let me just read this to you as we finish up. He writes, If two angels were to receive at the same moment a commission from God, one to go down and rule earth's grandest empire, the other to go and sweep the streets of its meanest village, it would be a matter of entire indifference to each, which service fell to his lot. The post of rule or the post of scavenger, for the joy of the angels lies only in obedience to God's will. So the bottom line, again, is that our acts of service for others, excuse me, our acts of service for others are evidence that God's love is operative in our lives and one of the main means by which God's mission advances through his people. So are you living a life of sacrificial service for the people close to you and the people far from you? Because that's one of the main barometers of your belief and trust in Jesus' sacrificial service for you in his death and resurrection. So may it be the case with us in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's pray.